We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hi friends, and welcome to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 197. Have you ever left the show ring with an idea in your head of what you thought you scored, and then you were totally off? Well, today I have two amazing judges on. They are also have decades of experience with riding and training, editors, writers. They've done a lot within the industry in multiple disciplines, but they joined forces to write a book called Judging Hunters and Equitation WTF, standing for Want the Facts. Um, Their book is now available online and goes through all the different areas of the hunters and the equitation, why the rulings are there, and what they look for as judges. I wanted to ask very specific questions about things that have happened in my show world as a trainer and things that I've seen and things that maybe are cut and dry and some things that are left a little bit more for the opinion of the specific judge. So without further ado, I would love to welcome our guests today, Julie Winkle and Trisha Booker. Trisha, if you want to start, I would love to hear kind of how each of you first kind of found yourself in the equestrian industry. Well, I, I grew up in a non-horsey family, although my mother loved horses um, and grew up on a farm, a working farm. And um, my first stuffed animal was a horse. And I have pictures of myself as an infant with the horse. And I guess that's where it started. And I ended up um, starting riding lessons, you know, in first grade or so. And I was immediately hooked and just went up through the, the levels in the hunter jumper world, um, starting, you know, in the, you know, short stirrup, long stirrup, going up through the ponies and children's hunters. And, um, I guess the, I had planned on doing something in medicine in college. And then I had a skiing accident when I was a sophomore and ended up having to drop out of school. And I ended up having an extra semester, uh, to, um, do something, uh, creative, before I graduated and I chose an internship at the Chronicle of the Horse. Wow. And I ended up getting a Bachelor of Science degree, but then becoming an equestrian journalist. <laughs> That's so funny. How often do you use that degree? <laughs> Actually, you'd be surprised. I was a volunteer for the Smithsonian um, Institute for Bio- Biology and Conservation, and I was a citizen scientist for um, seven years studying grassland biodiversity and birds. So wow. I actually did it, but I wasn't paid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, Julie, what about you? Well, I grew up with horses. My first uh, time on a horse, I was 10 days old. And my parents are the best horsemen I still know to this day. So we grew up on ranches on the West Coast. And my dad was a saddle bronc rider. And when he was 27, he had four children and wasn't that good of a saddle bronc rider. So he got a cowboy on the ranch to teach him how to fly. And he became an airline pilot when he was 27. And then he taught my mom how to fly so she could be a flight instructor so she could make money also. And 
he did not want us to have anything to do with horses because he didn't want us to become horse trainers. He wanted mm-hmm. us to be doc- doctors and lawyers. And we were never, um, we were never without horses because we'd lived on ranches our whole time growing up. So I knew from five years old, I wanted to be a horse trainer and I was never uh, able to really go to any horse shows besides local backyard horse shows. And so I started teaching when I was 15 and started my own business then and learned as much as I could um, outside of what my parents could teach me about showing and jumping. And I was just really enamored with the jumping because one day my grandfather came uh, to town and he was telling us that one of these, one of the four-year-olds on the ranch kept jumping five foot barbed wire fences from one field to another. Wow. And I'm like, wow, that'd be so cool to learn how to jump. And so I basically started jumping in a Western saddle until it kept getting horned. <laughs> Got a little bit in the way. <laughs> and uh, saved up enough money uh, to buy an English saddle. But we raised horses. So all the horses we had growing up were horses that we bred and raised and started ourselves. And um, that's how I got into it. So I was 15. By the time I uh, got to college, I had a pretty big business and never looked back. Who would you say, Julie, are um, some of your influences growing up as a, a like a very young professional and kind of looking up to those trainers and riders around you who would you say those influences were for you well as a teenager uh bill steinkraus and george morris were my two for heroes. sure and i read a lot and watched um as much as i could uh from them and then later in my career I had a lot of people come and do clinics so I could continue to learn. And Joe Farges is the ultimate horseman, in my opinion. Yeah. So we've been become very good friends over the years. And I totally respect his outlook on, on horses and, and life in general. Amazing. Trisha, going forward, kind of as you were a young rider, kind of getting into your riding a little bit more as a junior, what would you say were some high moments, uh, some things that you look back upon and thought were really, you know, positives or pivotal in your career? And what were some learning moments that you experienced? Well, I, um, I was very lucky that I had a lot of um, wonderful horsemen around me um, who not only taught me a lot about um, riding and showing, but also horsemanship in the barn. And that really helped me because when I had a, I had a really nice young um, hunter that I got uh, as a, when she was a five-year-old and I expected her to be my junior hunter and equitation horse. And she ended up having navicular issues. So as a 10th grader, so I was probably 16, um, we ended up donating her to a riding school as a dressage horse, and I had no horse to ride. So I had um, a lot of catch rides, and I ended up, as a 16-year-old, riding large ponies, (laughs) and um, I had a lot of um, experiences with young horses. I ended up riding in a dressage barn, 
because I didn't have any other horses to ride at the time in the hunter jumpers. Sure. And I learned a lot from those, those trainers as well. So I, I feel like I was really, I persevered a lot, even though I didn't have um, as many opportunities in the, um, to ride and meet my goals in equitation. I was able to learn from great dressage trainers. So I feel like my foundation became stronger for that. And yeah, it was disappointing not to get to the finals, but I feel like in the long run, I um, became a better rider for it. And, you know, I learned a lot about taking a hit, but also then rebounding and doing something better. One door closing, another opening. It's sort of sure. that but that was, as a young rider, that's kind of what I had to face. And I think it made me a stronger person down the road. Definitely. Julie, what would you say for you? Well, certainly my low points were growing up with um, the only horse I was really able to train and show. It was a, a very difficult thoroughbred that my dad said right off the bat, why are you, why are you wasting your time with this horse? He is not a good horse. Um, and that just, you know, made me want to prove him wrong, but this is a horse that ha- was very insecure, very stubborn. Um, I tried to teach him how to jump and we'd go to a horse show and he wouldn't go over one jump. And then I would cry for the next two weeks mm-hmm. and try to figure out how to make him jump. <laughs> then I'd go yeah. back to a thorough show and he wouldn't go over one jump and then I'd cry for another <laughs> two weeks and be nervous and for two weeks and then I'd you know get to go to another show and still wouldn't jump. So that horse taught me more about a horse's mind than anything. And he became uh, a horse that not only was a top junior hunter, but in those days we all we only had one horse. I showed him in the what is now the meter forties when they were touches classes and that horse learned not to touch the jumps. That horse learned uh, to have a lot of confidence in himself and uh, think that he was, you know, really great at everything. And we had a lot of trials and tribulations uh, in trail classes. And also um, I, I roped off of them. I healed off of them, and I also did breakaway roping in in uh, high school. Cool. So he was my most <laughs> difficult horse, but he was also the horse I learned the most on. And then I guess competition-wise, probably my high point was um, I bought a, a stallion as a six-year-old and developed him into a Grand Prix horse. Uh, that I showed at the beginning of his career. And then I had a benign brain tumor removed and lost all of my hearing and sight on the left side and my, uh, my balance. So I kind of thought it was done uh, riding. And my son started riding. And probably my one of my uh, high points was him him and my horse winning a huge Grand Prix, uh, meter 50 Grand Prix out of uh, 65 horses down in Del Mar, wow. California. Oh, so. that's amazing. What would you say is the benefit that you found in 
doing so many different areas of the industry as far as your riding is concerned, kind of being having, I guess, both of you really with um, dressage and hunter jumpers and then Western and jumping. What, what would you say is the benefit in kind of being a well-rounded or dabbling in multiple disciplines? Well, I, I have to say that I appreciate horses. Um, I, I don't really um, have breed bias. I have ridden so many different horses and yeah. I've competed. Actually, I've competed in endurance. Um, I've fox hunted. I've ridden American saddlebreds. I've evented. I've done dressage. Um, I even taught one of my warm bloods how to drive. So I feel like I appreciate more of what a horse can do. And they're, um, as Julie said, they're, you know, you learn about what makes them tick and you just become a much more understanding and well-rounded horseman, you know, learning different um, disciplines and appreciating. I love Arabians. I, I rode endurance and I competed and I never understood how, and you know, I, and Arabians to me, when I first learned about them, they stood in a ring and looked pretty. Well, yeah. I had no idea. They climbed mountains. They, their stamina is unbelievable. I, I rode, <laughs> I've ridden in 50 mile endurance rides and cantered almost the whole way <laughs> until the bitter end when we galloped the last four miles to the finish line. Wow. And they're just, horses are just amazing. And I just feel so fortunate that I've been able to do so many different disciplines and learn so many things about all the different horses and breeds. So to me, I, I'm, I'm super fortunate. And a lot of that I have to say came from my time at the Chronicle of the Horse, where we covered so many different breeds and disciplines. And I was there for about 20 years, starting as an intern and ending as the editor. Um, and I got to travel all over the world um, comp- watching horses compete at the highest levels and all the different disciplines. And I just am so appreciative of them, um, as you know, the animals that do all these wonderful things for us. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I think kind of even just taking the opportunity to dabble and see all the different maneuvers and techniques and things that they are are they're willing to do for us is just so incredible that that they are just always willing to listen to you and work with you um, once they kind of have a clear idea of what you're asking them to do tell me a little bit about your book I'm so excited um, and I think that it is a topic that is so insightful and so helpful for the industry, especially with the hunters in equitation. And so tell me a little bit about how the two of you got together and realized that there was a need for a book like this within our industry. So I got my judge's card uh, back in 1986 uh, when you didn't have any requirements to get a judge's card, you just had someone at the top say, oh, she needs a judge's card. Okay. And uh, going to local shows with students when I was 15, 16 years old, I always was um, curious about judges and what they liked and what what they didn't like and why. And uh, my judging career took off right off the bat. And I really enjoyed traveling to different places and seeing different horses and different uh, trainers, how they put the horses in the ring and um, was able to 
then judge all the major horse shows, Devon, Harrisburg, Washington, Upperville, Pony Finals, Derby Finals, um, you name it. I've been able to judge them all. Metal Finals, McClay Finals, Talent Search Finals. And throughout the judging, I was also on several committees for USEF and USHJA, um, Continuing Education Committees and Judges Committees, where we developed the uh, curriculum for the continuing education of the judges. And I became one of the clinicians. And teaching is my passion. And throughout the 10 years I was a clinician, I realized how important it was that number one, all the judges were on the same page and got the same information uh, throughout their continuing education uh, time, but also began to realize that this information should and needed to be uh, for the public as well. So it wasn't a mystery. It didn't seem uh, political and that the trainers uh, that aren't judges needed the information as well as the uh, riders and the parents. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that's what really inspired me to want to share my knowledge and experiences uh, with the general public. I think also, uh, and I'm sure you have felt this before with years of judging, is that the misconception is there is a lot of bias or politics or that a judge is maybe like out to get a rider or looking for them to fail when it seems like essentially any judge that I've ever spoken with um, is that they're doing it to, you know, help the continuation of the sport and it's something that they're passionate about and they are looking to, they're looking and hoping that the horse and rider put in a perfect round. So I just, I always find that that um, misconception is prevalent, but something that's obviously very off. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. Um, when we're in that judge's box, we're hoping, you know, that we can give a 90 or even higher. I mean, it doesn't happen often, but that's what we're always hoping. Mm -hmm. And in um, my my background is a little different from Julie's. I, um, I started judging when I was in college and um, I was taking a horse to a local show and the judge didn't show up. And um, the, the trainer asked if I would um, judge the horse show instead of showing in it. So I put my horse away and got up in the box and uh, I had a blast and I realized how much fun it was and how rewarding it was. And it was something that I really enjoyed doing. And I ended up judging locally um, throughout the Mid-Atlantic region for um, about 20 years before I ended up getting my judge's card. And, you know, I spent a lot of time, I'll backtrack a little bit, actually. When I was um, about 15 or 16, um, I was showing in an under saddle class and at a large horse show. And there were like 20 or 25 horses in this class. and my horse, I was lucky if I got a sixth, you know, in the under saddle, but I, you know, back then you just always went in the under saddles and it was pretty crowded. And a girl, um, ended up, um, her horse bucked and kicked out and she fell off and I happened to be right behind her. 
And my horse just stopped and stood there like almost in, like next to her, protecting her from the other horses that were still cantering along. And I ended up, we ended up lining up and I was second in that class. And I went, wow, how did that happen? You know, what was the judge thinking? As it turned out later on, I found out my trainer told me that the judge was so impressed that my horse stopped and, and was so calm and protected that girl laying on the ground. Oh, she gave me second place. And I realized then that it wasn't judging was a mis- little bit mysterious, but judges use their best interest. They always have the best, you know, interest of the horse and rider and heart. And they're looking for the good, not the bad. And mm-hmm. so that really changed my focus on, on what judging was all about. And like Julie said, I feel like helping people learn about what we're thinking in the judge's box and taking the mystery out of um, how a judge um, pins a class, how they fill out their card, what they're looking for. Um, and the book goes into strategies and how riders can improve their performances. And we hope that through the book, you know, like Julie said, parents and trainers and riders can, you know, learn about what goes on and how to improve their own, you know, rides and see a little bit about behind the scenes and what we're actually thinking when we're sitting in there. I have a funny story to share that I hadn't even thought about for years, but, you know, part of the book, there's a lot of stories in there that of things that happened when we were judging or, you know, that shows that we're only human. And uh, my first horse show, I was 11 years old. It was my, on my birthday and it was my horse's birthday as well. And it was actually a thoroughbred mare that my mom was given uh, when she worked on the track as a 12-year-old girl because the mare uh, knocked her eye out when uh, she was nine days old and they didn't want to spend the money on trying to race her with one eye. So we have this one-eyed mare that we all learned how to ride on. She was wonderful. And I was in my first horse show in Western Pleasure class. And this mare was awesome. 20 or 25 horses in the class and going to the uh, left, you know, she was great going to the right. She picked up the wrong lead and she was on the wrong lead the whole time, but it was so dusty. <laughs> the judge couldn't see. <laughs> and I got second. And <laughs> so I'm like, what if I get second? I was on the wrong lead. My mom said, I don't think the judge could see anybody going to the right. <laughs> Hey, whatever works. (laughs) That's amazing. Oh, I love it. Have you ever needed to fly your horse somewhere? The partners of Equijet have been well-established in the competitive horse world for over 20 years and have been in the import and export business for more than 15. With lifetime passions of riding, training, and taking care of horses, Equijet's expertise and knowledge of the nuances of equine travel are just unparalleled in the business. They really understand that comprehensive and clear logistical solutions to shipping needs are of the utmost importance, and they ensure that your horses are headed to their 
their final destination with the proper documents, safety, of course, at all times. At Equijet, they are horse people first, dedicated to the well-being of your horse in transit and to its destination in top condition. Equijet's top priority is shipping your horses safely and with the highest amount of service, and their team is absolutely committed to professionalism, detail, and timeliness. So to find out more about Equijet and how they could be helpful for your shipping needs, you can visit their website at equijet.com. That's E-Q-U-I-J-E-T.com. Thank you so much, Equijet, for sponsoring this episode. All right, let's get back to the episode. Tell me a little bit, Julie, over the years of judging, do you feel like the competition in the hunters and the equitation has gotten more cutthroat or like there's finer details that set apart um, the top ribbons? Or do you feel like it's kind of been the same since you've started? Tell me a little bit about how the competition has changed over the years. Well, I think that uh, for sure, the influence of the warm blood versus the thoroughbred has changed our sport. When I started judging and, you know, all through my early career as a trainer and rider, all we had was thoroughbreds. Mm-hmm. And as the, thorough, as the warm bloods have come in and the breeding has gotten better and better, the um, quality has become next level, oh, you know, uh, above and beyond anything we ever saw uh, 20 years ago, even. So I think that the, uh, the quality of the horse has really changed. I think that the type has become more consistent where you don't see the big heavy types or the real weedy uh, types. They're all a lot more um, a mix of beautiful animals that move beautiful and jump beautiful and um, are well-trained. So I think that as the sport has evolved, there are a lot of good horses and the mm-hmm. quality and the quantity has just surpassed anything that we ever expected. Definitely. So it's awesome. You can just sit back and really separate the great ones at the top level. However, as our book explains, there are certain parameters uh, and pat scores that all go back to the hunt field. and. I think what people don't understand is that judging can never be black and white because horses are so different and judges' backgrounds and knowledge is so different and diverse. But at the end of the day, there is a framework that we judge within so that it becomes easier for the public to understand if they understand what that framework is. That's a really good point. Yeah, I think that that's, that's really cool. I mean, what would you say, Trisha, would be when you're judging a difference for you or the, the things that you look at that really wow you or, or kind of set the horse apart, you know, between like an 85 and a 92? Well, uh, you know, uh, judges bring different backgrounds, um, and I think that's the the beauty of this, you know, the subjectivity aspect. And for me, 
I did grow up um, fox hunting, so I really appreciate a good jumper. I mean, I love a good mover and believe me, the whole package is important, but having been in the field and watching and um, jumping different horses over trappy terrain, coops, panels, water, I really understand now how important it is for the safety aspect. So for me, when I'm you know, judging a high level class, um, a beautiful jumper is what I'm looking for. And to me, the, the form and the style and the rhythm and all of that just um, kind of is my, you know, the key to my high scores. Um, and I'm, I think I'm pretty, that's a pretty common belief or a, a common mm-hmm. viewpoint for most judges. Um, but there are a lot of people, I, I sat with judges who love a thoroughbred type. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've sat with judges who don't. So they all bring different, you know, backgrounds. And I, I think that's, you know, um, one of the great things about, you know, showing our hunters is that we get to, you know, um, show in front of different people and get different opinions. And um, I think that's great for the sport. Definitely. I just want to add one thing. I, I totally agree with everything Trisha said. And, and the other thing that really impresses me as I'm watching a horse is manners and expression. So expression to me is key because I love horses and I want the horse to love their job. So I want the horse to carry pace through the turn. I want them looking through the bridle for the next jump. I want them excited about their job. And I really appreciate a horse that has uh, a great personality and attitude towards what they're doing. That makes me think of a question. Uh, We have a couple horses in our program who have a beautiful jump, but sometimes they know they have put in a really beautiful jump and they will do a little head shake or a little play after, you know, like a really great oxer and out of a line. What are your thoughts on that? I think that a horse that loves his job and shows that I appreciate that. And I, I love to see it. Um, I don't want to see a horse that looks bored. I, I I want to see a horse that maybe he does play a little bit, but he knows he did a great job and jumped a wonderful jump. Um, I will say, and, and our book explains this a little bit, in a professional class, a horse can get away with a little bit more expression and, mm-hmm. and, and showing his enjoyment. Whereas if you're in a children's hunter class or a, um, a lower level adult <laughs> sure. class, that might not be what you want to see, you know? Yeah. So it, a judge has to take that into consideration, um, what the horse is competing in, um, and judge that accordingly. That's a good point. Um, what would you say? Um, because obviously there are um, certain processes that a trainer or a program can take if, let's say, they are questioning or wondering maybe why they or or their client got a certain score. Can you talk a little bit about the process of how a rider or trainer can communicate with a judge, receive a judge's card, and that whole process? So there is a, a rule, and it's spelled out in the rule book, about approaching a judge. Uh, first of all, as an exhibitor, you have to go through the steward. Uh, the steward has to ask the judge um, if they would allow someone to come and speak to them about a certain class. 
if uh, the, and the judge does not have to allow that. Mm-hmm. They can say, no, thanks. I, I'm not interested in talking to anybody, but I've never known that to be the case. I think that as a judge, we are all trying to do the best job we can. And by keeping a judge's card and a stagger, we are keeping notes and trying to recall everything that happened on course and have a reason uh, why someone got the score they did or why they placed in the order they did. So if the judge um, does agree to speak to the exhibitor, first of all, if it's an exhibitor, uh, they should come with their trainer. Mm-hmm. So it's not a he said, she said. And the, um, the protocol for that is to, the judge should only speak about the round of that rider, not the other riders in the class. And at the end of the day, the judge is there to put the horses in an order, not to give a clinic. So a lot of times I would be cautious about doing it too much because it does then put a little bit of a bad taste in the judge's mind for future classes. Sure. As far as that exhibitor goes. Tell me a little bit about what made you decide to include certain topics in your book. How did you, I mean, because I feel like this could be like 20 books <laughs> trying to cover everything and all of the details and kind of what you look for and, and things that you find helpful for exhibitors. Um, how did you kind of narrow down what you were going to cover? And Obviously, um, you are covering the hunters and the equitation. So how did you kind of divide that or organize the book? Well, we, we could have gone in a, um, a lot more in depth in certain areas, but um, we really took the training part out of it. Like we, we don't want to tell people how to train a horse or, you know, how to improve their ride through training. We're looking at this from a judge's perspective. So We talk about, you know, our chapters are divided up into what a judge would look for and, and, you know, the ideal horse, equitation horse, or the equitation rider, the ideal hunter, the ideal pony. And then we talk about strategies that the riders can use and we talk about turnout. So we really looked at this from a judging perspective um, and not a training perspective. And I think that that helped us um, fine tune the chapters. Um, and we also really wanted to impart the history of the sport and why um, the hunters in particular um, developed the scores they did and the judging criteria based on fox hunting and what happens, you know, with even to attire and bits and bidding and why you do certain things, you know, why you wear what you wear and your horse, you know, tack. Um, all comes from the hunt field and safety and conservative traditional attire. So um, it was pretty actually an easy process to write the outline of the book. We actually did it in the car on the way to a horse show. Oh, I love it. <laughs> That's perfect. Um, Julie, what would you say um, in the equitation ring when you're judging the eck? what would you say is one thing that like, is really like a faux pas for you, something that like really gets on your nerves and is hard for you to maybe like get your mind off. That's like so distracting that 
it just just bugs you. Posting the canter. That's number one. <laughs> I hate that too. Hunt coats that are too short that don't cover the rider's butt. Um, bling. Dirty boots. Roughness with a horse or poor sportsmanship. Those are right at the top of my list. Mm-hmm. Trisha, what about you? Oh, I would say very similar. Um, I, I concur with Julie. And uh, I'm probably a little bit more um, flexible on on some of the modern attire, but um, anything that distracts a judge um, from watching the horse, I really feel like is a one of my pet peeves. I, I saw that actually at a show I judged a couple of weeks ago um, where I had this beautiful horse, but the rider had a hunt coat on with bling and every, the glare and the, the distraction, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, I noticed it. And, and I, I really appreciate when people look traditionally attired and the horse is what they're showing off and, and not what they're wearing. Sure. Another question for either of you or both of you, if you have differing opinions, um, what are your thoughts on in the hunter ring at a trot jump, the rider sitting the trot or posting to the base of the trot jump? Okay, so I teach and train the horses that the last couple of steps, uh, if the rider sinks into what we call a light seat, that produces the best trot jump. Uh, so that's what I would like to see a rider do, whether mm-hmm. they're the rotation or the handy hunters, because when the once the rider sinks in but keeps the hip angle closed, they allow the horse to back up at the base and get to the base, and then the rider is with the motion as the horse leaves the ground. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think sometimes if you're if you're dealing with horses that are coming from different training backgrounds, it seems like it's sometimes a, ca- a horse case-by-case scenario where maybe some do better, some maybe anticipate or try to do a canter step. So I feel like sometimes there's some differing depending on maybe what the horse has, you know, been trained to do, but yeah, I kind of I like that idea of kind of melting in that light seat right at the base. I want to make a comment about that, actually. So we had um, 20 other, you know, top judges in the country um, help contribute to the book and give some of their thoughts and, um, you know, advice on how people can improve their their rides and their showing performances. And one of those um, judges is Linda Andrasani. And she wrote a wonderful piece for Instride magazine for the USHGA Nice. Um, yeah. I'm the, I've been the editor there for 10 years and we, it's going to be in the upcoming issue and it's all about the trot fence. Oh, cool. And it's her opinion on what she looks for. And she believes there's a difference in the trot fence and how she judges it and the equitation and the hunters. And so it, it's a very interesting read. And um, again, it's, it's her opinion as a judge. It might not be the opinion of other judges, but it's very informative. And she believes that the equitation ring and trot fence should be more controlled. And she believes that in the hunters, it can be a little bit more um, bold and she doesn't mind a canter step. So each judge has their uh, different opinion. Interesting. Really valuable. And I really enjoyed doing that article with her and, and I hope people enjoy reading it. Um, it'll be in the March issue or January. Wait, where are we? <laughs> um, it'll be in the next issue of Instride. 
Love it. Oh, that's so interesting. Cause I feel like, you know, so many people might think, oh, we like blew the class with a canter step, but that's, yeah, that's very interesting. Some horses take a canter step to set themselves mm-hmm. uh, for a trot jump. So, you know, there's a difference in my opinion between what a full on canter is and just taking a little bit of a half canter step to set themselves. Sure. Yeah, I totally see that. So tell me a little bit about an area of the industry that you are passionate about, Trisha, that you feel like the rest of the equestrian community either just doesn't know a lot about or just doesn't talk that much about. Um, I, I, for me, um, I was a, an avid reader of every horse book I could get my hands on as a child. And I read um, everything from modern literature to um, studying the old masters, um, reading about Burton Emothy and Gordon Wright and their books. And even back to the Tower and Chamberlain, um, I still actually, I reread a, a Chamberlain book, you know, a couple of months ago. I really feel like that's one part of our sport and industry that has kind of been forgotten. Going back and reading and learning about the history of horses and sport and training, a lot of what we do today was done in you know, 50, 100 years ago. And yeah, we've modernized things and and made a lot of um, changes, but really the foundation is still there. And I I think younger people and and even a couple of generations back could really go back and learn a lot about the history of the sport if they just spent a little bit more time with books and maybe a little less time on the screen. Um, That's, I guess, my passion um, would be to inspire people to read more books and, and study the history. And again, as the editor of Instride, I include um, a looking back um, department in every issue. And I really try to pick and choose different topics um, from training to people, to profiles, um, to our heritage horse shows, just to give people a little bit more um, education in history and maybe inspire them to go beyond and, and investigate and read more on their own if a topic hasn't, you know, interested them. And Julie, what would you say for you? Definitely uh, educating people about horses in general. Um, I think that we get so hung up in going to horse shows, competing, winning ribbons, um, that we forget about how horses were designed in nature. And I think a lot of people could learn a lot more about doing a better job taking care of them and training them and having longer careers with them if they understood that horses in nature um, are herd animals, they're flight animals, they thrive on companionship and being turned out as much as possible, Mm -hmm. not only for their mental well-being, but for their physical well-being. So there's just so much to learn horses by um, watching horses in the wild. If you ever have the opportunity to do that, I would just uh, really love to see people understand how to take care of the horses better by simulating as much as they can horses in a natural state. 
Definitely. Yeah, I think those are two really good points. Well, judging hunters and equitation, WTF, which is one of the facts, not to be confused with anything else, is um, available. Where can people find your book? Our book can be found um, on incoursepublishing.com and judgingwtf.com. There are two websites and you can um, purchase the book through either site. Um, There'll be links. And we're also judging WTF, that website, we're going to be um, incorporating a blog and judges tips and a newsletter. And if you sign up, we'll be sending information and we're going to continue the conversation. And we really hope that people will buy the book, read it and start talking about judging. And, And we encourage people to send us questions. We have an active Facebook page and we just want to help people learn and you know, we, we will definitely be doing um, updated versions of the book as rules change and as our sport changes and, you know, trends, well, I shouldn't say trends, let's say different aspects of the sport um, become, you know, uh, well, actually you can cut that part out, but yeah, I just (laughs) (laughs) evolve. Thank you. So yeah, as as things evolve, we'll be um, updating the book. Amazing. Well, I really just appreciate the two of you taking the time and your years of knowledge and seeing something that would be so helpful for this industry to really understand our sport more. And with, with a, I feel like with a sport that the, you know, knowledge and the opportunities to learn more can sometimes be so overwhelming and daunting, not having, you know, a clear path uh, for knowledge and maybe getting different bits of information depending on who you ride with or what your past experiences is. So I think having you know, education like this coming straight from judges who have been doing this for years is just so helpful. So I really thank you so much for taking the time to put this resource together. And I'm so excited to see how you continue to put um, more and more stuff together for our industry. And I wish you both all the best. Thank you so much, Bethany. It's a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thanks for having us. All right, that is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much and I will talk to you next week.